On the show today, we learn absolutely nothing new about our government and politics. Then Rick Warren breaks our heart, and George Barna released another survey on the state of Christianity in America. We'll also discuss our Bible topic, Knowing Sin, Chapter 6. It's a lot to discuss, so let's get to it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer, and it's my beautiful wife, Nikki. Hello. And we're very grateful that you're joining us today. Um, if you're new here, we like to always remind early up front that uh, don't let the name fool you. We are Christian, religious folks, but the world and the country that we live in is not. It's a very secular, very religionless place, you could say. And that in part is where our name comes from. If you care to know where the rest of that uh, backstory on the name comes from, go listen to one of our first three episodes. We discuss it there. But uh, we're going to do what we try to do every week here, and that's just discuss the news uh, of the world around us and try to figure out how to digest it and what's going on. And as Christians, keep our eyes fixed on Christ through all the craziness. That's always the goal here. We'll see how we do. But... Um, we do have some good stories to discuss. Well, they're never good, really, are they? The news, yeah. Never that great, <laughs> but it's news to discuss, and we're going to discuss it. But before we get to all of it, honey, is there anything you'd like to say? Prayer requests, praise reports, anything of that sort? Yeah, um, please keep praying for my uncle. Um, for those of you who don't know, he's spent a lot of time in prison. Um, he's done a lot of drugs in his younger years. So his mind is kind of not where it should be. Um, he was released from prison around a year ago and he kind of just doesn't seem to care to take care of his health. He's not saved. So main thing, please pray for his salvation. Um, I did reach out to him last week and he couldn't talk um, there's something wrong with him. I couldn't talk with him on the phone, but I texted him. I shared the gospel with him and I sent him like a link to like, I like, I still like listening to daily audio Bible. I think that he would enjoy that. So I hope he's listening to it at least. Um, yeah, just all you can do is plant some seeds and I don't know, someone else waters and God brings the increase. So yeah, I pray that his end would be better than his beginning. So yeah, thank you for your prayers if you've been praying for him. Yep. Please lift up Freddie. And um, I would say praise report for me. I finally got back into the airplane uh, at my real job, my day job, and spent a couple years outside of the plane. So it was nice to get back in there. Uh, the muscle memory came <clears throat> came back pretty quickly. Uh, it was So it was nice. It went fairly well. Haven't had any issues. Um, still a lot to learn to get caught back up on, but as far as just operating in the plane, uh, it was just like it always was. So riding a bike, like riding, I told him, I was like, <laughs> it's like riding a bike without a seat, just a, you know, the tires are flat and you're on a bumpy road. That's what it's like. <laughs> but otherwise it was fine. So that was great. Um, so I don't know. Pray that it continues to go well. If you have time to pray for me, I'd certainly appreciate that. Now, let's get our plugs out of the way here before we dive into the news. Um, you guys know we love Team Cardinal. We 
recommend them every week because this world is crazy. No matter if you're staying home, if you're trying to open a Target in San Francisco, <laughs> or if you're sending your missionaries out to Nigeria, um, the world's crazy. Things happen that you're not expecting, that you're not planning for, and you don't have to go unprepared. That's kind of the big point with Cardinal. You don't have to be unprepared. Whether you're opening a Target in San Francisco, and how are you going to ha- you know handle the latest riot and keep your employees safe? Um, if you're a, a law enforcement officer who you know has to deal with the public and uh, and that sort of stuff, and stay on message for what the city and your leadership wants you to say. Or if you're sending a missionary to a place that hates Christians, um, you don't have to go in unprepared. Cardinal can get you prepared. It's what they do, and it's what they do very well. So their link will be in the show notes. Go give them a a look. Send them an email. See what they can do to help you or your organization. I don't think you'll be displeased. And then, of course, you guys know we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. Happy to be on there. Happy to be a part of it. About 60 or so good podcast on there. Um, I'm sure they have a topic that you'll enjoy, whether it's Matt Slick doing live call-in shows, <laughs> hearing people talk about ghostly apparitions in their house and how do they deal with them, to uh, movie reviews, to even us, your humble hosts, are on there and happy to be so. So go check them out. And then lastly, we got to get the shameless plug out of the way here. If you guys want to help the show, Easiest way to do it is to drop a like, follow, subscribe, whatever platform you're on. Leave a comment. Uh, If you're on the podcast, Apple or something, leave a nice review. Um, All those things, they cost you nothing but a few moments of your time, and they certainly help us a lot. And then if you have, you know, more money than you know what to do with, consider supporting the show. We have links, affiliate links down in the show notes to, you know, Amazon, Christian books, different things like that, Best Buy. So you don't have to support us directly. You can support us indirectly, you know, go and buy your kids some shoes for their birthday. Uh, You use our link, we get a small percentage and we'd certainly appreciate that. It does help us, you know, do the things we need to do here. All right. Cue the music. We've got the plugs out of the way. We definitely need the music this week. It's highly necessary. So gird up your loins, steal up your soul, prepare yourself as we take our weekly trek through the valley of the shadow of death and take a look at the news of the week. So do you want to read this first headline, honey? After four-year probe, Durham report slams FBI for actions in 2016 Russia investigation. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go, right? The Trump-Russia collusion was a gigantic hoax built on lies. And if you read the report, the FBI knew and didn't really care that much. Truth is always going to come out. Yeah, you know, but... And that's sad, right? The truth came out and you're like, well, so much for truth. <laughs> that's the truth that came out. <sighs> truth, justice, and the American way are dead. Probably have long been dead, but... Now, we don't bring this story up here to really tell you guys anything that you don't already know, because really anybody with a what we would consider a smidge of like inquisitiveness or I guess 
you just understand the state of American politics and all of that. Um, You knew the Trump-Russia narrative was a hoax for a long time now. Um, But this is what we hope is just sort of your weekly reminder. We seem to do it every week to remind you uh, that the media and the political class, um, which apparently now the FBI is a part of the political class, uh, in this nation, like many places around the world, they're liars and the truth is not in them. That's what this serves to remind you of. Uh, so do you want to read? We got one paragraph here. We're not going to, I'm sure if you are paying attention to the news, you've heard much of the Durham report. So we're not going to bore you with all the simple details of it. I just want to go through this one specific paragraph here. Our investigation revealed that senior FBI personnel displayed a serious lack of analytical rigor toward the information that they received especially information received from politically affiliated persons and entities, Durham wrote in his report. In particular, there was significant reliance on investigative leads provided or funded directly or indirectly by Trump's political opponents. The department did not adequately examine or question these materials and the motivations of those providing them before opening a full-scale investigation. (laughs) Think how incredible and how astounding that statement is. Like the FBI, they're presented with the idea that Donald Trump was colluding with Russia to win the presidency. And the information that they're given, you know, was really, they just said there, it was all gained or given to them by Trump's political rival and one of the most corrupt people in probably the planet, Hillary Clinton. And they basically just said, okay, sounds good to us. Let's just go ahead and sabotage his campaign. And then we'll just work for years to crush his presidency. That's all it took. And if you read through the report, this stuff was briefed to them, not just by, you know, the CIA director. They knew that this information was coming and they just got it. And were like, good to go. Let's just crush this man. It's just astounding. And, you know, I think the big difference between the way Donald Trump was treated with the way Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, you know, are and were treated, I think it's just as simple as 30 plus years of elected office in Washington, D.C. Like, they've been there forever. Yeah. And this is the uniparty people always talk about. This is that sort of the corruptocrats that run this nation. Uh, This is them at their finest or their worst, if you want to consider it. Like, I mean, to think about the FBI, they're our nation's like foremost law enforcement agency. And they're being given information by Hillary Clinton. Is there anybody with more dirt and baggage to their name than the Clintons. And they just take it and go, thank you. We will, (laughs) we will treat this with the utmost seriousness. Are you kidding me? But that's what they did. Right. And I think this is important to remind um, Christians of because Christians are good people. You know, we generally want to see the best in others. And I think we should, you know, that's what we should strive to do. Um, But that can, at times lead us to be taken advantage of. And even that's not a big deal for Christians. Um, Being taken advantage of is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's not something that we should try to avoid at all times. I have um, one verse here from 
Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6, verse 29 and 30. Do you want to read those verses? Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Yeah, so like, just simply being taken advantage of is not like an unchristian principle. You know, you should avoid trying to necessarily be taken advantage of, but in the event that you are taken advantage of, you know, you don't necessarily have to fight back. But, you know, it can lead us to being taken advantage of in the way of like emotional manipulation. Yeah, that's Uh, what I was thinking of. And we do see that, right? I mean, how often does our news media, our political class, I mean, all of the racism narratives, Mm -hmm. it's hoaxes, right? It's just to stir people up emotionally. All the bigotry, the sexism, it's all designed to just manipulate you emotionally. So you're being taken advantage of, you know, where you're being led to sort of be a tool to further their aims in the world, whatever their personal or political goals are. You're just a useful tool to them. So I think that's a bad form of being taken advantage of. And now on a personal life, you know, people in your life, that sort of thing. If someone's taking advantage of you, I don't necessarily think that that's always a bad thing. Um, But it can also, you know, lead you to positions where, like we just saw, you're voting for people that really hate you. Um, They hate your way of life because you failed to use discernment. Right. right? We talked about this. You need to be wise. Yeah. Yeah, wise. Discernment is important. You know, Joe Biden, he's a Catholic. I'm a Catholic, right? 52% of Catholics voted for Joe Biden. Yeah. So he can work to make sure all the babies are aborted, all the children are groomed and, you know, mutilated. You're like, that's your Catholic that you got behind? Are you kidding? Well, well, you can see the way they work. It's like they're not even changing up their tactic. It's like, you're a victim. I'm the same as you because I grew up that way. So we have that in common. So vote for me. <laughs> right. And that's like every politician, you know, we just, recently talked about what's his name brandon johnson i think the the new mayor in chicago you know progressive you know defund the police kind of guy and when you read through a lot of like the statements on why people voted for him it's all like yo he gets us he's one of us you know what does that matter like you're trying to get a leader like, I don't want someone that's like me. If I'm going to war with Russia, I don't want somebody like me. I can be pretty lackadaisical. I want George S. Patton to lead me into war. I don't care if he's like, you know, this was the whole Barack Obama thing. You know, even as people were beginning to, like, disagree with his politics and his policies, every time they would vote, like, who would you like to have a beer with or whatever? They're yeah. always like, oh, Barack Obama. Great. Have a beer with a man. Does that mean he needs to lead the free world? Like, we need to have some discernment. We vote emotionally. That's the issue. They they get into your emotions. Yeah, and even let us, you know, well, Christians, you can't vote for Trump. He's a bad guy. Joe, he's a real nice guy. And you're like, okay, well, one guy wants to, like, murder all the children, mutilate all the kids. The other guy is, like, mean and has, like, a seedy personal life. But he's pro-life. You know, like... His personal life really Why does that matter? Yeah, but he actually cares about this country. Just bizarre, right? And, you know, so that sort of being taken advantage of is not great. But we just wanted to highlight that even the FBI, the CIA, they're becoming political 
uh, organizations in America. And that's sad. You know, well, things can turn around, of course. So pray, pray yeah. your, as hard as you can, but uh, it's just important to know. So that's all, you know, you can go and read the Durham report if you'd like. Um, but for us, again, and the reason why we want to point it out, it just serves to reinforce the fact that there is really only one place you can confidently go for the truth. It's the word of God. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else, be skeptical. Use discernment. Uh, and especially when it comes from the news or the political class, assume it's a lie until you do all your own homework. Yeah. And um, if you fail to have time to do your own homework, just assume it's all a lie. Um, if it's causing division... It's a lie. Yeah. Just know that one. Unless it's coming straight from the word of God and there's division. But otherwise, yeah, they're lying to you. So now that wasn't necessarily um, bad news per se, because I don't think it caught anybody off guard. You know, when the report came out, I think it is incredible. You know, they said it was a four year investigation. It's incredible. It took them that long to figure out what like everybody knew in 2016, as soon as the presidency started for Donald Trump. Hmm. But you know, it's important, right? They needed to do their due diligence to make sure that they got all the convictions that they needed to get out of this deep investigation. It just, I mean, this is kind of good news, not bad news. Yeah, because now people are, hopefully their eyes are going to be open and see the wickedness, just see the lies this coming out so well that's wishful thinking but it's untrue because their eyes won't be open and the reason they won't be opened is because nobody is actually getting in trouble for any of this all the lying all the falsifying information yeah i was wondering that too no convictions nothing happened this is just a sternly worded letter that's all it is so it took them four years to come up and say we know what you guys did we just want you to know that we know what you did. Anyways, have a nice day. So now it's just kind of saying, you can do all the lying you want. You, you, you can be as corrupt as you want. That's Don't literally worry about what it. the report means to me. Yeah. They just went out and said, we've investigated you for four years, and we know all the nefarious things that you did, and we have evidence for it. So don't do it again. <laughs> or else we're going to investigate you again. Like... So what? Why I mean, no one gets in trouble, right? It made me think, you know, with RFK Jr. running now, they ought to just come out and go, you know what? Yes, the CIA assassinated John F. Kennedy. You might Jr., as well. <laughs> but it was just politics. So let it go. And everyone would go, ah, yes, it's just politics. You do what you have to do to win, right? Um, so pray for RFK Jr., lest he also be assassinated like his uncle and his father were assassinated but also i thought maybe we should just pardon richard nixon while we're at it you know for all these years since the 70s like watergate was the big political scandal watergate and he was impeached watergate is nothing (laughs) compared to what we just saw from the russia collusion hoax they literally had a political party like co-opt the nation's foremost law law enforcement agency to just promote some completely false narrative to try to win a presidency and sabotage a presidency. Like Watergate was nothing compared to what the Russia collusion hoax was. And yet Richard Nixon was impeached for it. And Hillary Clinton's still on Twitter lecturing the rest of us. So it's a great time to be alive. 
It always seems like the wicked are getting away with everything. Like there's nothing new under the sun. Like this is written in God's word. Yeah. The wicked don't seem to be suffering. And, yeah. um, you know, and maybe that's, if we are under judgment, again, that's the whole, uh, it's a worthy, we've earned the judgment for sure, because we let wickedness abound and God gives us we wicked rulers. Write sternly us. worded letters to them to let them know that we know just how wicked they are. But pray. We know we know. <laughs> that's all we can really do, right? I mean, I can't affect what Congress is going to do, but just pray. Um, pray that these perpetrators will be brought to justice. Um, because I think that that's what's needed, right? If you want to dissuade crime and this sort of criminal activity, people need to be brought to justice. Yes. Um, so pray that they would be. Um, and then, as we mentioned before, put your faith in God's word. Uh, it's the only truth that we have in this world of lies that we live in. And uh, another verse here, Paul, as he tells us um, here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Do you want to read that verse, honey? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Yep. Great advice. Great advice. And politics is none of that. So <laughs> Don't think on those things all day. You heard the story yeah. from us. Put it out of your mind. Love God, love people, pray against the wicked, and uh, yeah, don't turn on the news media, don't jump on Twitter, um, it's a cesspool. So, but again, that wasn't necessarily the bad news, <laughs> that was just news, we all knew it, right? Yeah, that is. The next story, this is the real heartbreaking news, hard to even talk about. Do you want to read this headline, honey? Sorry, I just <laughs> want to laugh. Okay, Rick Warren appointed first ever chancellor of Spurgeon's College in London. Deep personal connection. Yeah, I mean, look at the. <laughs> if you're watching on the video, uh, and we're going to play some video clips here in a minute, but if, if you're listening on the podcast, go check out the links. It looks like a spoof. It looks like an SNL skit. It does. And how I wish it was an SNL skit. You know, it might have even been funny, you know, to write such a skit. But sadly, this is real. And it just, you know, I was kind of setting the clips up here as we're going to play through them here in a minute. Just a few clips just to kind of, you know, point out what was said and done there. <laughs> I think if you listen closely to the audio, you can even hear like one of the old, you know, Spurgeon's College, London, you know, Whatever he is, I didn't even listen to the guy's speech, but he's like, I'm assuming some vice chancellor, president, whatever he is. But he's like loudly breathing in the background and like I the mic is just, just like, <gasps> <gasps> you're like, holy he's smokes. sighing maybe, you know. <laughs> yeah. So Rick Warren installed as the first ever chancellor of Spurgeon's College in London. So we just want to play through a few of these clips here and just discuss them. They're not going to be terribly long clips, but we just want to set the stage, I suppose. I feel like we have to talk about it. So here's this first clip. 
it is an official and ambassadorial role in which you will serve as a vital advocate for our vision, gospel mission and values nationally and internationally. So, short clip there, but again, I wanted to point that out because as they said, I mean, he's a chancellor, right? And the chancellor, they kind of mentioned, you know, he's, he's going to be the kind of just the pseudo face of the college. He's more of a marketing kind of role for him. But they said yeah. he's serving that because essentially he aligns with Spurgeon's college's values. So it's not like they know very well who Rick Warren is. Uh, and that's why they chose him. His values and their values align Maybe today, did their values change? Oh, they absolutely did. And you can go to their website. It's not the uh, the best website, but they have, you know, their classes and stuff. And, you know, their their values seem to align with Rick Warren's values. They don't seem to be, um, I guess, aligned quite so closely with Charles Spurgeon's anymore. Um, you know, it's essentially just a namesake anymore. But uh, let's see here. We had a couple other, um, we're not going to play through all of these clips because there's a lot of them, but here, I just want to show this little, because it looks like an SNL skit and you guys have to see it. <laughs> it is customary to give an overview of the reasons why a distinguished individual such as Pastor Rick like, look at that backdrop and setting. Like, you just expect, like, Will Ferrell to come walking in the side <laughs> and doing something goofy. Um, and I get it, right? They're wearing their old, you know, their gowns and caps. And I'm not necessarily trying to make fun of it, but it just seems like a spoof. Like, there should be some sort of punchline coming here pretty quickly. But what they say, you know, this lady here, I just wanted to point out, because, again, he lines up with their values, is what they say. And as they're, you're watching this video, and it's sort of playing through here, you know, they point out this is Reverend so-and-so. Um, that's the vice chancellor or whatever she happens to be. Warren needs no introduction, as he is one of, if not the most, well-known pastors in the world. Yeah, so there you go. Um, Reverend, whatever they said her name was, the Ellen. vice chancellor, deputy vice chancellor. But so, you know, again, that lines up with Rick Warren's values. You know, he's all for the uh, female empowerment in the church. And Spurgeon's College seems to be right on board with um, female empowerment. I mean, I guess she's a reverend and also, uh, not to say that being a vice chancellor necessarily is uh, not allowed. That's certainly acceptable, but the reverend part, right? Um, let's see. I had a couple other clips here. Oh, this one, I think. Hopefully this is what talks about his deep personal connection as Nikki read in that headline. Secondly, Pastor Warren has that connection with the college. As Pastor Warren is the great-great-grandson of one of our graduates, Edward Gould, who studied at Spurgeon's College under Charles Spurgeon and was then sent to America 
to plant churches. <laughs> so you hear this a lot when you look into Rick Warren's background and what a bizarre claim to fame um, for Rick Warren. Like he's the great, great grandson of a guy that studied under Charles Spurgeon. That's his claim to fame. And I bet his great, great grandfather, this Edward Gould fellow was probably a great man of God, you know, as Charles Spurgeon was. But what's interesting is as a young man, Rick Warren had the chance to study at Spurgeon's college. It was opened in new. I'm sure he knew. Oh, he ahead of time. It's influenced his entire life, apparently, being the great, great grandson of a man who studied under Rick or under Charles Spurgeon. But Spurgeon's college opened in 1856 by Charles Spurgeon. Right. So he had the opportunity. He didn't, though. He never went to Spurgeon's college. He went to California Baptist College. Then he went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And then icing on the cake, he went to Fuller Theological Seminary. And what's interesting, he didn't even go to Spurgeon's College in America because there's a Spurgeon's College at the Midwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. So he had the opportunity to even go to Spurgeon's College in America, and he chose not to. Uh, So very bizarre claim to fame. Yeah. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, right, it got him this sweet gig to be chancellor of Spurgeon's College. And it made me think, you know, those kind of 23andMe DNA ancestry kits might be worth your time. Who knows what kind of lineage you have. And you might be the great, great grandson of somebody worthwhile that can get you a job or a promotion someday, though your lifestyle and your beliefs are completely at odds with their lifestyle and beliefs, but that connection may serve you well. It would be neat to go here and and see the college, but now knowing how far they've drifted from Charles Spurgeon's values and and vision, it would be sad to go. Yeah, I mean, and again, we didn't do some terribly deep dive into their website didn't really have a lot about their beliefs and all of that sort of stuff. Maybe it's because they're just simply resting on Spurgeon. Um, but well, the fact that Rick Warren is, you know, the face now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, that is, That's, he is the face. Of that just Spurgeon's shows college. they have no discernment. There's no, yeah. It's, it is a shame. But I was being hopeful and thought, well, maybe Rick Warren will How dare you actually read some of Spurgeon's books and realize how different he actually is from him and think, hmm, no, because maybe they I shouldn't share be DNA. in this position. <laughs> they share DNA. He's downloaded it all subconsciously through his shared DNA <laughs> with Edward Gould, who uh, I guess maybe if you were like, Spurgeon's great great grandson, maybe that'd be something. But like, you're just a dude that was, I mean, Spurgeon, I mean, he taught everybody. He's like one of the most famous pastors in the world, had an immense impact on Christianity all around the world to be like, my grandfather was led to Christ by Spurgeon. Yeah, everybody was. <laughs> like, that's kind of the point with Spurgeon. But 
Another clip here. Spurgeon's College's vision is to train men and women for Christian mission, ministry, and leadership in the contemporary world. Oh, so there you go. There you kind of see the values that he's a good fit for. Um, training men and women for ministry and leadership. That's Spurgeon's College's um, values that seem to align very well with Rick Warren's. And uh, because obviously you wouldn't install him as chancellor if, you know, he he didn't actually agree with all of those things. And who knows? You know, it's sad to really think this way, but maybe, you know, I, I imagine this has probably been in talks and discussions for a long time. You know, Spurgeon's College, Chancellorship. I mean, these things probably don't just happen on a whim. Right. Um, so who knows? I mean, Rick Warren might have been in talks for years about retiring from the pastorship of Saddleback, maybe taking on this chancellorship type position. Yep. So maybe he was, this is my uh, nefarious thought processes running through my brain, but, you know, trying to make sure his values did align with Spurgeon's college's um, values so that he had this opportunity for this, um, you know, chancellorship type position, or who knows, maybe they just stars did align his beliefs changed. Remember he talked about how after 40 years in ministry, he read the great commission and realized that means women can be pastors, you know? So maybe those stars just align, but we have one last clip here to watch. And uh, we're not going <clears> to <throat> try to cry on screen or on the microphone, so you don't have to hear that. But this is the breaking your heart part. So, Chancellor, you were invited to sign your name in the President's Bible. Mm. You will see the signature of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, yes. the yes. first president yes. of the college, and future generations, if the Lord be not returned, will see your signature as the first chancellor of Spurgeon's College. Oh, it's just hard to watch. You're going to open the President's Bible and it's going to be Charles Haddon Spurgeon, followed right by Rick Warren. Oh, I was like, that would be like going to Grace Community Church and signing, and it's like John MacArthur, and you flip over, and it's Joyce Meyer. You'd be like, oh, God. You know, like, oh, Gosh. it just, the first, I, the first time I watched it, I was like, man, that just, and look, you know, I know it doesn't mean anything, right? Charles Spurgeon was just a man um, used by God, but watching Rick Warren sign his name, right after uh, that first page there in the President's Bible. Like, it just made me think it's so sad to see where our faith is now today. Um, you know, from the heights of sort of the faith and the ministry of Charles Spurgeon to like this seeker-sensitive, watered-down faith of Rick Warren, it just, it's difficult to see. Like, do they just want to keep it in the family? Like, Charles Spurgeon has like great grandchildren, great, great, or whatever, however far down the line is. Like, I know there's still family from his line. Like, what do they think of this? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what they think of it. Um, Maybe they just want someone who also just already is known worldwide. Because well, do and that's what it is, you know, and they make college. that case in here that he's the most famous pastor in the world and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And again, it's a chancellorship. He's not the president of the college. He's not even a professor at the college. He's sadly the face of the college, but it's a marketing position in a sense. It's, you know, a recruitment position, if Why you will. Why did he have to sign his name? <laughs> because he's there. the first ever chancellor of the college. And, um, it's just, you know, and even watching the whole video, and I know that this is probably nothing new, but if you watch the video, it's just these three other apparently distinguished individuals sitting around just like lavishing praise on Rick Warren for who he is and all this great stuff that he did. And there's something that's prideful to me about a man just sort of sitting there mm. as a group of people just lavish this praise all over you that I think is really unbecoming of a Christian. Um, you know, I think mm -hmm. Rick Warren, if he is anything in life and ministry, it's by the grace of God. You know, it's not about, so, I mean, for us, it's not necessarily about Rick Warren per se. Um, I mean, it is as far as his position at Spurgeon's and what that means and who Spurgeon, well, I mean, that is Rick Warren specific, but, um, this would go for anybody if we were watching this video. And I, it made me think of this year's shepherds conference. They actually had, you know, John MacArthur was, um, hurt, you know, he had some illnesses and injuries and stuff, so he couldn't really make it there. And, um, Stephen Lawson got up and heaped what I would say is, you know, excessive praise on John MacArthur for who he was. And even what, and I love John MacArthur. I love Steve Lawson. And I was like, it's a bit unbecoming of a Christian. Like he's, he's just a man being used by God, you know, and, um, we should strive as Christians to be Peter and John in mm -hmm. Acts chapter three, uh, verse 12 and 13. If you want to read those verses, honey, I think this should be the mindset that we strive for. Yeah, this is after they healed the lame uh, beggar. It says, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or godliness, we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Yeah, like, you know, to sit there and just be heaped praise on of you're so great and amazing and all the, and you're just like, yeah, it should be. Well, there's your Christ. reward. It should be God. Yeah, right. You <laughs> earn your rewards on this earth, um, or do you earn them in heaven? And yeah, we do idolize. I mean, there was even someone I was listening to, uh, John, one of John MacArthur's older sermons, and someone, you know, he's doing like a question questionnaire afterwards, and someone was asking a question, but he also had a request, and he's like, can I please meet you after this? Like, you could tell he was just starstruck. But he he did say, like, he, you know, he had a huge impact on his faith, and and John MacArthur's like, sure. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I get it, right? I mean, part of this, it is a recruitment ploy. It is a marketing video. So you're trying to drum up and make the case for why this man deserves to have the position of chancellor and all that. But, you know, I just think 
as Christians. Yeah. And it's more for Rick Warren, you know, like you should be uncomfortable sitting in that position, having people just yeah. drool all over who you are. Uh, it just, I think it's unbecoming. Um, so just ultimately having him in that position, I, I don't think this world needs more watered down sort of Rick Warren style purpose driven churches, you know, the whole kind of growth at all costs kind of churches that we have in America. Uh, we need more Charles Spurgeon's. Um, and unfortunately and oddly, mm. it looks like Spurgeon's college won't be a place to produce more of those men. Yeah. So I couldn't really bring myself to listen to all of what Rick Warren had to say about the position. I know you said you watched it and he was like crying. He was super emotional. Yeah. That would break me. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I could do I it. I don't. Um, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think he really realizes his position, who he's. Yeah. But, you know, know, we'll have the link again down in the show notes if you want to go give it a listen. Um, maybe you can listen to it and let us know if there was anything worthwhile, anything we should apologize for if it actually turns out to be um, better than we, I guess, we're giving it credit for. Um, please leave us a comment. Send us an email. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on that. But yeah. I just couldn't do it. Couldn't listen to it well, too just, much for me. I may have brought this up a year ago when I was reading um, biography, but it was the book called Susie, Susie Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's wife. So it was a lot of the work she did to help his ministry. Um, yeah, I did feature that book a long time ago. It, it was great, really just her perspective on him. And, um, and there's a lot there's a lot in there. It's just, you really get to know who he was and how they raised their children, um, things that he dealt with. Um, a lot of people don't know, but he dealt with depression like his whole life. Um, so yeah, I, maybe we can link that book, but that was an excellent book just to help you see like the difference between Charles Spurgeon and Rick Warren here, where we're coming from with our disappointment. <laughs> yeah. So we figured instead of listening to Rick Warren, um, go on and on. And we actually, I think just on Nikki's note there, we did do an episode sort of looking at Christian heroes on Charles and Susie Spurgeon, where I think we kind of talked a lot about what was in that book and their life. So that's on the channel. You can go give that a listen. Yeah, we did break it down, didn't we? Because I think his life and especially her life, because we know a lot about Charles Spurgeon's life, but Susie Spurgeon I mean, might have been even more impactful mm -hmm. as far as getting Spurgeon's ministry yes. and, you know, Christian beliefs and theology out yep. to the world. I mean, that was... She continued she that his after work. his life, so she was very instrumental. So for us here in America in 2023, we probably owe as much uh, gratitude to Susie Spurgeon as we do to Charles yep. for um, very incredible story. Mm -hmm. Great woman. Almost as good as Nikki, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to end instead of listening to Rick Warren, we thought when, uh, you know, since he likes to wear this Charles Spurgeon connection when it seems to suit him, we'll end with a Spurgeon quote instead. And we figured why not look at how Charles Spurgeon viewed this sort of female empowerment, um, egalitarian preacher type of uh, theology that Rick Warren seems to be caping up for. So this is. Charles Spurgeon on Women in Ministry. 
He says, but notice that what this good woman did was very appropriate. Peter's wife's mother did not get out of bed and go down to the street and deliver an address to an assembled multitude. Women are best when they are quiet. I share the Apostle Paul's feelings when he bade women be silent in the assembly. Yet there is work for holy women, and we read of Peter's wife's mother that she arose and ministered to Christ. She did what she could and what she should. She arose and ministered to him. Some people can do nothing that they are allowed to do but waste their energies in lamenting that they are not called on to do other people's work. Blessed are they who do what they should do. It is better to be a good housewife or nurse or domestic servant than to be a powerless preacher or a graceless talker. Yeah, that's a lot. Not sure how old uh, Rick Warren would line up with uh, Spurgeon's thoughts there. Um, I don't think they would be in great agreement on the egalitarian. I don't think Charles Spurgeon would see female preachers in the Great Commission quite the way Rick Warren does today. But, you know, he grew a big church and he wrote a book. Is that the only book he's written? No, he's written a bunch of books. That's the only one I've read years ago, but I I did. I did read that book. You know, Tim Tebow read The Purpose Driven Life and it made a big impact on him. So, I guess if you're new in the faith, maybe... But I'd have to go back and look at it to see. I don't know. Maybe it helped me somewhat because that was very. Just read new. Susie Spurgeon again. Just read. <laughs> You'll be all right. Um, all right. So we just got one more article we want to look at before we get to our Bible topic. And this, uh, this is the survey that we uh, mentioned in the open here from George Barna, who does a lot of surveys on the state of Christianity in the world and all of that. You want to read this headline, honey? America under threat from syncretism, George Barna says in study, churches urged to respond. Yeah, (laughs) churches urged to respond. Good luck with that. Um, The church is probably where they're getting most of these false beliefs. And uh, we'll get into the article here in a minute. But when I read that statement, churches urged to respond, it made me think of an article we read months ago. You guys may not remember it, but there was kind of a guy writing... um, he was kind of praising the seeker-sensitive churches, speaking of Rick Warren. He was kind of praising them for getting so many people into the church. And he said, you know, now is the time to really start preaching about sin because people are in the church and they're seeing the evil in the world and they're ready to learn about it. You're like, yeah. The problem is, though, right, uh, those churches that they're in that are growing are there because they don't speak on sin, they're seeker-sensitive churches. They're there to make you comfortable, mm-hmm. right? So they're not going to turn from that model now that you're in because you may not stick around. That's the big problem, right? So, uh, you know, we've mentioned earlier in America, church growth equals church success. Um, it's not, you know, doctrinal orthodoxy or any of that sort of stuff. Church growth is church success. So you do all this to get people in there. You're not going to turn it on its head once they're in the door. So if you're going to churches and being taught these myriad of beliefs that, you know, some are biblical, some aren't, pulled from false religion, all these different mixtures of beliefs, you're not going to turn that on its head and be like, now we're going to preach Christ and Christ alone, sola scriptura. Like, it's not going to happen. Be great if they responded. Just don't hold your breath. Uh, So do you want to read this first paragraph here, honey? While the World Health Organization has declared that COVID-19 is 
is no longer a public health emergency. America's embrace of syncretism, the fusion of different religions, in the growing rejection of a biblical worldview remains a threat to general quality of life in a post-pandemic world, especially for children. New research from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University suggests. Yep. And so that's what the syncretism, you know, kind of idea is here, right? The fusion of all these myriad of different religions and beliefs. But I think this even goes beyond just the fusion of like traditional religious beliefs. Um, You know, we've had sort of this rise of non-denominational churches or We've even seen the all-denominational churches that have sprouted up, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think this even includes the Bethel churches, you know, those kind of churches who blend Christianity in the mysticism or the New Age, the occult-type practices. I mean, that's, I would say, syncretism as well there. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, just in the last couple years, how many Christian sort of leaders and, you know, all these sort of people have you seen embrace or kind of sing the praises of the Enneagram personality test. Like that is mysticism. Yeah, I remember um, correcting Christians on Facebook several years ago with that. And gosh, yeah. they got angry at me for warning them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like they're being taught that that's, like, you know, perfectly acceptable with their faith. Yeah. Like if somebody corrects you on something, another brother or sister in the faith, on something that you think is safe, but they're concerned the Christ-like response is not to be angry at them for being concerned for your soul. You should respond like being thankful that they actually care no, or bold no, enough no. to That is an old-timey thought. <laughs> the way it works today now is when someone corrects you on anything, you assume they're a hater and that they're wrong and you ignore everything they have to say because you know everything. And all of your beliefs are perfect. That's the best so way to go about. If you guys correct us on something, I hope that we respond with, you know, in the right way. Like, thank you for it is caring. How you respond, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you'll change your beliefs. Um, right. But you should be open to, and this even goes, you know, we're kind of poking fun at Rick Warren there and, you know, forgive us if we took it too far. That's not necessarily our intention. It's just but even shocking. In that, <laughs> Even in that mode, right? If Rick Warren comes and tells you, I see that women should be preachers, you should at least look at what the argument that he's making is and say, well, he's been a pastor for 40 years. Let's open the verses up and read them, right? Don't just dismiss outright. So if somebody says, hey, man, this is kind of, the anagram has like some occultic backgrounds that you should really look into and steer clear of. Don't just go, you're an idiot. Shut up. It's helpful. Do some due diligence. And maybe not just from everybody, right? Because there's crazy beliefs all over the place. But if there's people in your life that you think are godly and wise, it does you um, good to consider their points of view. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to throw it, you know, change your whole belief system because what they believe. But you should consider what people have to say, I think, thoughtfully. Yeah. But, you know, I'd say this whole syncretism thing isn't even necessarily new. You know, it's a tale as old as time, as they would say, this sort of um, blending of faiths. And then even, you know, if you want to take it one step further from that traditional faith or even the mystic New Age faith, I'd say sort of the blending of faith with politics. I would say that's Mm -hmm. another way of this syncretism sort of taking effect, Um, because politics is becoming a new religion in America. 
you know, we'll go to war over our political beliefs. We'll lose relationships. We'll fight and burn down cities over our political faith. You know, Trump and Barack Obama, they're deities in America today, depending on what side of the aisle you're on. But like your real faith, our Christian faith, like when do you hear that discussed? You know, when are people going to war to defend their Christian faith anymore? Well, not even war. It's that the, like we're to have no fellowship with, you know, the unfruitful works of darkness with un, with unbelievers. You know, you share the gospel with them, but having a close friendship and pretending like they're not on the road to hell. But people won't have fellowship at all with people who have a different political view. Not everybody, but I know a lot. Families not talking anymore. Um, but people don't really do that over, you know, their faith. Not that you want to like, because we're not supposed to divide and where we just pretend like they don't exist and be hateful toward them. But there is more division over politics. So it, it does show that that's their religion, that they would be willing to cut ties with family members. Yeah, we treat politics the way we should treat religion, you know, where it's separation from the heretical and the sinful and, you know, unity with the like-minded, the believers and stuff, you know, but instead now it's division, separation from our political opposites, nothing to do with those people and, uh, you know, complete unity with those who side with us on, you know, political issues or whatever happens to be. It's like completely flipped on its head. And Well, the church just wants to be friends with the world. And that's, yeah, it's just... And we will say there are certainly some that are standing and fighting against, yeah. you know, all the, the evil, the syncretism, you know, all the, the pseudo-religions and all that sort of stuff. There's people that are fighting against it. And it's interesting that they're all the ones that the syncretists and pseudo-religionists are attacking all the time. So... Um, but they do exist out there, so it's not everybody. But um, it's interesting because they kind of talk about the syncretism idea, but um, then they sort of get into more of just kind of the state of faith in America. And do you want to read these first couple paragraphs? The research, which involved the tracking of a nationally representative sample of 2,000 adults undertaken in January, showed the lowest incidence of adults with a biblical worldview among the youngest cohorts, millennials, adults born between 1984 and 2002, and Gen X, adults born from 1965 through 1983. The data show that of the four generations, millennials had the lowest incidence of biblical worldview at 2%. Their connection to Christianity was also shown as quite weak before the pandemic, and was even weaker by the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Millennials were hit hard by the pandemic in dimensions such as their emotions, finances, vocation, relationships, and ideology. Woo! Did you know we are top two percenters? Two percenters of millennials that have a biblical worldview. Do you feel like a two percenter? The top 2%. That feels good to say. Maybe we should humble ourselves. But I'll just say, I disagree in part with what he says here. You know, where he says at the end, um, millennials were hit hard by the pandemic uh, at the end there. 
I don't think millennials, you know, they weren't hit hard by the pandemic in areas such as finances, vocation, relationship, and ideology because of the pandemic. Uh, they were hit hard by the pandemic because 98% of them don't have a biblical worldview, right? That's why these areas suffered so much during the pandemic is because their views were wrong as they entered the pandemic. You know, your sort of personal truth that we love to mm -hmm. banny about today, you know, this sort of self-idolizing ideology that we have didn't really offer much hope when times got tough. Right. You know, but for those with faith in Christ and a biblical worldview, we should always be ready and prepared for difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so worldview is the problem, not necessarily the pandemic. Well, this world isn't it for us. I think that's why it doesn't affect us as much emotionally. It doesn't shake us as much because our hope is focused on heaven. You know, we're not like, this it isn't should it. Be. Like you shouldn't have such a tight hold on the world. You get so shaken and surprised. Like Jesus warned us <laughs> ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, that's why we, you know, you're, we're even doing the gospel of Luke. We just finished Luke chapter 21 not long ago going through there and reading about all the end time signs that are coming in the persecution. And you're like, boy, these, you know, seeker sensitive, you know, God's for you, prosperity gospel ministries. Those people are going to be in a bad spot when they think that their lives are just supposed to be great. And they're supposed to be overcoming all these battles and all this, you know, and then you find yourself with your, your family and friends turning you into authorities. Like, that might not be a faith that really uh, supports you very well mm. through the midst of persecution. So I would say worldview um, is the problem here, not necessarily a pandemic, because hard times come, you know, and if your worldview is, uh, isn't able to sort of prepare you for those hard, hard times, like a Christian, a biblical worldview is, you're going to suffer. It's just the way it is. So um, it does go on in here in this article, and it says only 5%, so only 2% of millennials have a biblical worldview. Only 5% of Gen X adults hold a biblical worldview. Um, hmm. Do you want to read this next paragraph down here? In all but one instance, those changes toward Gen Xers moving away from biblical perspectives or behaviors. In general, the nature of the spiritual transitions among Gen Xers during the pandemic era was a shift away from trust in God. Among the biggest changes in the religious perspective were declines in believing God created humans, that he is the basis of truth, and that he is the omniscient and omnipotent ruler of the universe. <laughs> it says, they had changes in the perspective of believing God created humans. Like, what during the pandemic would cause you to lose faith that God created humans? Like, was it the science was just so good <laughs> during the pandemic? The <laughs> science was so sure and believable, so rock solid that you thought, if science is this right about COVID and how to treat it, science must be right about everything. Like, is that what shook you and changed your belief that God created humans? I think people just humans? got mad at God and just decided he doesn't exist or 
Maybe just something simple as that. When I lost happen. my job, God isn't real. Like maybe that's yeah. just as simple as it was. But uh, you know, I'm kind of joking here. But there's nothing like nothing was more wrong during the pandemic than science. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard the science changed? Right, like that was endlessly during the pandemic. So unless you consider political science, science that was good science. You know, but as far as medical science, it would, I don't know what would cause you to um, lose your faith that God created humans. If that was something you believe strongly in going into the pandemic, then you come out and you're like, I'm just not sure anymore. I don't know. Not sure. Um, but I would just say, allow us here, your humble hosts on religionless Christianity, to clear up the misconception here. You never had a biblical worldview if hard times and difficulty causes you to walk away from your faith. Um, I would just say that because what faith you had in like a God, it was of your own making, probably. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you may have liked Bible stories uh, through what I would say is probably like a faulty understanding of those stories. But I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that that was a, biblical, a true biblical worldview um, because you simply can't read the Bible accurately and honestly, and come away with the idea that Christians aren't going to experience difficulty and suffering. You can't read the Bible and not see that. So if a pandemic shakes you to the point where you're like, I no longer believe God's omniscient. I don't believe he created humans. Um, you know, millennials have completely lost their faith and got... You didn't have a biblical worldview before. Well, I wonder if any of you guys know someone who had that. Maybe there's them. exceptions. I don't know right? anyone. But exceptions don't disprove the rule. Right. So there may be somebody that you thought, you know, and we pray and we feel remorseful for anybody who suffered great loss, you know, lost a loved one. And yeah. But even that still, if you have a true, solid, foundational, biblical worldview and understanding of God, your faith should not be shaken to the point where you just walk away and go, I don't trust in God anymore you know, then we would say you, you never really did. Um, that would be our stance. So let's see what else he says in here. Um, he says, those doubts have precipitated important transitions of religious behavior, including less frequent Bible reading, church attendance, confession of personal sin, seeking to do God's will and worshiping God. Another noteworthy shift is the decline in how many Gen Xers believe that human life is sacred. Ah, there you go. Gen Xers are losing their belief that human life is sacred. The pandemic, for some reason, taught them that God didn't create humans and human life is no longer sacred. And to me, this is like the number one sort of indicator of self-idolization. No life matters but your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And we see that everywhere in this country, right? You know, we'll even kill our own children to ensure our lifestyle isn't interrupted. I mean, we're completely willing to sell out every future generation to make sure we have a great, comfortable life now. Um, And we didn't even really need this survey to tell us that Gen Xers and boomers and all of us, for the most part, you know, viewed our life as the only sacred and important life. I mean, we've got 
the, the governors we've talked about here before, the Gretchen Whitmers in our home state of Michigan, awful governors, the Gavin Newsoms of the world. Everything in the news just confirms what we already know. Yeah. Like there's no new things to learn. <laughs> no, these people are completely willing to kill all the babies to maintain their positions, their lifestyles, um, all this sort of stuff. And again, nothing new under the sun. Do you want it's to read like nothing our? Nothing uh... really is that shocking, like the Rick Warren thing. It did shock me, but I guess seeing how the the world is in the secret sensitive churches worldwide, yeah, I guess it's not important. that shocking. God exists for you to make sure your life is very comfortable. That's why He's here. Um, do you want to read Ezekiel sixteen verse twenty through twenty one? Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Yeah, so again, nothing new under the sun here. Um, Humans have long since been more than willing to sacrifice their children to ensure they had their best life now. Yeah. Um, but apparently the Gen Xers, they're uh, beginning to get on board with that message. Maybe in years gone by, they, again, maybe before the pandemic, they, they really valued human life. But then the pandemic came and they thought, you know what? Only my life's important. Um, but, you know, and again, Going back to the point of they never had a biblical worldview, because a hallmark of Satan is sacrificing other people's lives to benefit yours. That's mm-hmm. a hallmark of satanic people. Yep. And a hallmark of faith in God is sacrificing your life to benefit others, right? Completely backwards. Um, and the Gen Xers seem to be, I don't know, really liking the way that satanic side of the house looks here, where they sacrifice everyone else's life to make sure... They have the best life now. Um, But the article does go on to say that of all the four generations that live today, the millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, and elders, it's really the baby boomers and elders who are holding down the faith in this nation Mm. with a whopping 7 and 8% respectively holding a biblical worldview. So the real stalwarts of the faith today, 7 to 8% have a biblical worldview. Wow. So you look at that 2% of millennials, 5% of Gen Xers, 7% of baby boomers, and 8% of elders. So where's the 65% that claim Christianity? Yeah. All the surveys, right? 65%. Yet at best, 8% of elders have a biblical worldview. We've said it many times here, so we'll say it again. You can't be a Christian if you don't have a biblical worldview. Um, and you don't hold a biblical worldview if you pick and choose what you want to believe from the Bible, because a biblical worldview simply just means that you believe the Bible is the word of God. That is true. And then you use that as a lens in which you see the world through. That's all it means. So how you could be a Christian, if you don't believe the Bible's true, you don't use it as a lens to look through the, or look and see the world through you pick and choose what you like out. I would say well, yeah. you're not really a Christian, right? They're yeah, they're putting self before God and his commands. That's what it boils down to. That's it. And you know, the thing about the 65% is sadly they're probably in your church. 
they probably go to your church, right? They're the pseudo Christian teacher at your school, maybe, right? You know, they're the politician, the Christian mm-hmm. politician that we see who use their faith to drum up votes. Um, yeah. It, but ultimately, they lack faith like many in this country do. We know the road is narrow, so it can't really be 65%. It, it's less, we, I mean... And again, right, this might be... I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you would... There's all different kind I of don't views. Know. I don't know. It's just the road is narrow, right? I mean, you see how narrow it is. This, I mean, just do this. It's not many people really agree with God. And yes. we think that the, I think the last article we looked at that had a biblical worldview talked about six percent. And we've said on this show for a long time that's probably the more accurate number. You know, when you just go around the country and you know and stuff like that. Seems like six percent of the people that you interact with might be really sold out Bible believing, biblical worldview Christians. Um, the sixty five percent seem seems about right of those who wear some label of Christianity, but really aren't Christians, you know, because they don't they don't uh, they don't adhere their life to to Scripture. Yeah. They just they live their life, and where Scripture fits, it fits, and where it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, and we actually just had this discussion with our pastor this week that maybe the greatest mission field in America is the Christian church, you know, because 60% of these people who claim to be Christian don't know God, and yet they're at least showing some passing interest in him to show up or whatever. So, like, you've got a mission field. You yeah, know, at least don't... They're, you don't have to prove the existence of God to them, like, with the rest of the world. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, <laughs> At least I you're a little bit level. of a head there, I guess. So yeah, we shouldn't overlook those who sit in our pews and, you know, in the, the church services every week and just assume that those who need to hear the gospel and that sort of stuff are outside the doors or they're outside of the country. No, they're in your church. Yeah. And, you know, it just made me think like, pastors, you need to do your job. Like, you need to proclaim the name of Christ. You need to preach the word of God. You need to stop preaching your own stories and your own self-help seminars. Like your churches are full of people that are going to die and go to hell. And you're going to stand to account for these people who you were supposed to be shepherding and you didn't because Mm -hmm. the Christian church doesn't know Jesus. They, you know, they don't have a Christian faith. They don't have a biblical worldview. They don't understand what the Christian faith requires of them. They don't know sin. They don't know the ramifications of sin you know, if it's left unrepentant, all these sorts of things. And they're in your church. So what are you doing? I think the fact that everyone's aware, your pastor's aware that everyone listens, follows to somebody on YouTube for, you know, extra teaching, just learning different things. I don't know, all the, especially the, the new age stuff mixed into the church. Like those ones are really popular and it's likely everyone in your church has come across them. Like you have to know your sheep um, are listening to false teachers and they may not know it. So you have to warn them and not just assume they go to my church. They're good. There's just so many false teachings out there and everybody watches YouTube. Everybody's getting extra information somewhere. So you need to work harder 
You really yeah, do. I've never been on YouTube's like for you page and had them recommend to me anything that wasn't like Francis Chan or you Stephen know Stephen Furtick is Stephen Furtick or TD Jakes. Lot. Yeah. You know, so you need to assume Whatever it's your church. promoting is yeah. <laughs> we should assume it's it's our church. I mean, should you should assume it's everybody. Everybody needs to hear the same message. Mm-hmm. And there's no new gospel, there's no new testament. It's the same thing over and over and over again, beating it into our heads. That's what we need. Um, do you want to read? I pulled up Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15. If you want to read these verses. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Yeah. How are they to call on him who they have not believed? Like your 30-minute self-help seminar with a who wants to accept Jesus sort of slapped onto the end of it, that's not a gospel message. It's a false teaching um, at the end of the day because you're a preacher and you're supposed to be preaching God's word. True teaching is teaching God's word, not teaching your thoughts about God's word. This was our big problem with Michael Mm -hmm. Todd. There was a whole lot of him telling you what he thought the Bible said, but there was no Bible. There was no scripture references. It was his thoughts on the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's a false teaching, in my opinion. Um, it's teaching God's word is what a preacher is supposed to do. Um, so if you want people to know whom they're supposed to call on and how they're supposed to believe, it's opening the word of God. It's teaching them the word of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, a pastor's job, there are jobs for motivational speakers. There's jobs for coaches. Those are jobs that exist. If that's a job you want to do, those jobs exist. If you want to be a preacher, you know, of God's word, your job is to preach God's word, teach God's word. That is, it's not a calling for everybody. Yeah. And I think too many in this country, um, it's not a job for them. You know, James tells us not many are called to be teachers, yet we have many, many teachers. How can that be? So I think pastors need to look themselves in the face and kind of realize what is it I'm really hoping to do here? Do I want to be a guy who um, preaches the gospel, who teaches them God's word? Or do I want to be a coach, a motivational speaker? Because there's a Christian motivational speaker circuit that exists. Go do that. But if your job is to every Sunday stand in a pulpit and call yourself pastor and lead a flock of people looking, you know, searching after God, and you're not teaching them God's word, you're a false teacher. and again, there's greater accountability for those teachers. Yep. So teach the word for the love of Pete. <clears throat> Do you have any final thoughts on um, no. Rick Warren, <laughs> the super in-depth, you know, world-shaking Durham report? That's going to result in nothing um, no, for this survey here? Move on. Well, I will move just say... Um, because you mentioned social media, but as another problem here is our love affair with social media. That is a problem um, because many people have even foregone going to church at all. You know, they don't even go to church anymore. That's another sur- survey we've read recently. 
Um, you know, many of them used COVID as kind of a reason for not, not attending church anymore. Um, they'll just claim that they go online and they've said that it's just as good as in-person church. And that's a huge problem because first online church isn't church. It's online content. It's all it is. Yep. Church is a body of believers, you know, in fellowship, sitting under the leadership and teaching of elders and being discipled, you know, according to the apostles teaching in the gospel. Like that's, that's a church. Just watching online content at your house isn't a church. Um, and like you said, we kind of go to social media to have our ears tickled by preachers we like, um, who really tell us what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. And that's a big problem. You know, you can listen to a sort of great motivational speech that's kind of wrapped in Jesus while you're going to the gym. And, you know, now you're a Christian, it seems, right? Now you went to church. It's just not the same. You know, YouTube, these sorts of things, they can be a good supplement, you know, to your faith. And and I think it, they are good supplements, but like a supplement, it, I mean, it's it's in the name. It supplements the real thing. You know, you can take a protein supplement to supplement your otherwise protein-rich diet, you know, if you're working out or whatever. In a sermon online, it supplements your weekly church service, weekly church attendance, and, you know, these sorts of things. But they aren't replacements. Right. They're supplements, and they need to be looked at as supplements and not replacements. And too many people in this country are using them as replacements, that they're somehow interchangeable. You know, I listen to Francis Chan while I'm at the gym. I go to church. No, you don't. You need to be in fellowship with a body of believers. There's so many scriptures about gathering with one another. Um, even the opportunity to demonstrate forgiveness with one another. Um, just you're missing out on so much, and the body of Christ is missing out when you aren't there. Um, I mean, you, you're given spiritual gifts for a reason, not to keep to yourself, they're to edify the body and the body is Christ. So when you don't gather with the body, you're not gathering with Christ. You're neglecting him really. Right. And we've said before on here, you know, there are certainly people that can't go to church. We're not talking about those. We're talking well, the about those that are and visit otherwise them. able to go, but don't go. It's selfishness yeah. largely. You know, you want church on your, um, on your time when it's convenient for you and in a way that is, you know, um, palatable to you. And it's selfish, right? Because you're supposed to be part of a body giving of yourself right. to others as well. So right. Don't feel guilty if you're homebound or something or elderly or you don't have a car. But when you're part of the body of Christ, the other believers are aware of your condition. And if you're in the right church, and you actually know one another and care for one another, they will come to you like there's a time to be the blessing in a time for you to be blessed. And um, so the church should be reaching out and you can still reach out to them and still call people on the phone and pray together and have a meal together. Um, it's about being together and uh, caring for one another's needs than just about coming together to listen to a sermon, being the hands and feet of Jesus in practical ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. For America's climate goals, investing in clean energy adds up. But what doesn't add up is an additionality requirement for clean hydrogen. 
Additionality would put an unnecessary and inequitable burden on domestic clean hydrogen producers and have serious consequences for America. America needs clean hydrogen, but an additionality requirement just doesn't add up. Get the facts at cleanhydrogentoday.org. Paid for by the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association. Um, but we do want to make sure that we get time in for our Bible topic this week. Uh, we don't always get to our discussion on the book we've been going through, uh, Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, but we want to make sure that when we do have time, we get to it because, as we kind of mentioned, you know, not every church nowadays is sitting there speaking about sin and the ramifications and the dangers. So we want to take some time to speak about sin, and uh, it's a topic that should be spoken about, spoken about often in the Bible, so we should speak about it. Um, and we are going through Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin. We've been going through it. We're on chapter six now. And uh, this chapter here is titled Sin's Sorrow. Hard to say I'm sorry. So kind of obviously talking about the sorrow that should accompany sin. And I think this chapter is perfect after our discussion on like the Gen Xers, for example, um, and how they're kind of seemingly becoming increasingly more willing to sacrifice their own children to maintain their lifestyles. And people always get mad at me when I make this point. You know, I'll always get a comment or something when you, you know, whenever you talk about abortion, people get mad. But last I saw here, uh, 95.7% of abortions are elective. 96%. Mm-hmm. And elective abortions are choices made not out of necessity, out of convenience. And I actually just saw another survey. Was it 61% of abortions had in 2020 were by people who've had uh, previous abortions? So maybe there's Mm. one or two women who they were life and death situations both times. Seems unlikely that that's a high number. Most of them are abortions of convenience. So um, seems fitting that we discuss that we should be sorrowful over these sins. Um, because we are people that if we believe in God and we read the Bible and we understand the Bible, we should be overwhelmed with sorrow for our sin. You know, both mm-hmm. the sins that we commit and the sins that we are allowing to be committed, you know, yeah. cause that's a big problem too, with, we talked about politics earlier. I mean, we're voting in people that are allowing atrocities to be committed and we're signing our names to that. Uh, that should bring sorrow to us. And he has this quote, uh, just kind of going through the chapter here, this quote from a fella named William G.T. Shedd. And he says, to the degree that people hate sin, they reflect the image of God and thus flee idolatry. Um, And I think that's one of the major problems in America is we don't hate sin. You know, a person may hate a sin and you know, they may hate your application of a given sin. Um, but we see that people don't really outright hate sin. And I think it's because mm-hmm. we don't necessarily understand the evilness of the sin and really the consequences that that sin should bear on us. Because I think if we truly understood that, you know, we might mm-hmm. be more sorrowful of sin. You know, and we all commit sins, right? We have big sins that well, I hate this sin about myself, but we overlook the 99 other smaller sins 
and we don't think that they're that big of a deal. Um, but they all are. All sin should bring us that's sorrow. That's something we have to pray, ask God to help us hate sin, to recognize sin, because this world really waters down the truth and, and sin. Um, so, gosh, we could just not have discernment because we've just been so immer- immersed in the world and... Um, and I think I think we're kind of conditioned to be blind to it in some aspects, um, making excuses for it. Um, you know, the victim mentality, I think it's affected all of us. And to an extent, we don't even see it. And so we make excuses for our sin and thinking God understands because you're a victim. So you had to act that way or react that way. Um, but I, I think we definitely need to pray to recognize sin. It needs to be talked about more. In churches, definitely the gospel and sin. Um, I mean, that's the bad news is the sin. We need to know the depth of sin to understand the price Jesus paid. And that'll make the good news even greater when we hear it. And Yeah, that's not a full gospel presentation unless you also know what you're being saved from. Right. You know, you're not hearing the bad. Again, it doesn't make yeah. the good that good. As it should be. So, like with the homosexuality, uh, I know that's talked about the most because it's being taught that it's not sin. And gosh, that's just how horrible to tell someone that one's not a sin. But how can you be convicted by the Holy Spirit over other sins in your life and not that one? Is it the Holy Spirit then convicting you of other sins? Because if you're reading the Bible yourself, I mean, it's that one's obvious. Well, that's why you go and you find yourself an Andy Stanley, and he'll comfort you and make you feel okay in it. So maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to convict you. Um, Why would people want to be claim Christianity that they've been forgiven from their sins while holding on to certain ones and convincing themselves that it's not a sin? Why even try to be a Christian? Why care? What's, what's, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's so ingrained in our culture. I mean, and I think people ultimately know that they have to have some sort of, you know, foundation of morality that they want to claim. And atheism doesn't really offer much in that realm. I mean, there are people that try to claim the atheistic morality, but those are few and far between. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. It's an interesting thought of why people want to even go down that road at all and reject yeah. some of the Holy Spirit's prompting, but not reject others. It's, I mean, it's sin. Other, I mean, I would assume that keeps you from, those are sins we have to repent for as well, right? For rejecting the Spirit's prompting in us. Um, but Mark Jones notes on this idea of sorrow over sin. And, and here he says, we do not even know what we really are by nature of what we are capable of doing. Out of his grace, God preserves us from seeing ourselves in a manner that might cause us an instant heart attack. But God also, according to his saving grace, allows his children to see themselves as sinners truly, albeit partially, that they may flee to Christ for cleansing and salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe that's part of why we, you know, that's part of the sanctification process because we all don't get saved and then become immediate you know, uh, perfect saints. 
it's a sanctification process of seeing sin, you know, repenting and turning from sin and being shown other sin and, you know, that sort of thing. So maybe people are on a journey and maybe that's where we're being too harsh Mm -hmm. sometimes where people are on a journey and, uh, we have to understand that they're on that journey and though they may still hold on to some sins today. And again, this is why you can speak harshly against sin without hating people or turning them away or, you know, and that's why it's such nonsense when they call you, you know, you're speaking against transgenderism. Well, you're a hater, a bigot and all the, no, we love them. That's why we speak against it. We rebuke them like open rebuke. What is that proverb? Open rebuke is better than, Something secretly given. Yeah. Love, I don't know. Open rebuke is loving. It's not like being harsh is fine. It's not a sin to be harsh in in warning people about their path they're on um, if it's leading them to hell. It's, I don't know, just... Right, and it's, it's not, not wrong for us to be harsh about it. Not to be hateful no, I mean, you have to be, and harsh might be the, you know, a harsh word. It's more like frank about it. It's a sin and it separates you from God. Like, that's why we need to give them up and repent from them and turn from them. And, you know, so it is loving to do that. And it doesn't mean you turn away from the person outrightly, um, but you're trying to lead them down this path of sanctification to where, yeah, they give up the e- the easy ones early but then over time, you can get them to come away from the, the bigger ones of, that they're dealing with that maybe they're having a harder time letting go of. And that's that sanctification process. So um, because, like he says there, God doesn't just give us the full picture of what our sin is. We probably couldn't handle it as people. But he does reveal it to us over time and show us that sin so that we will, you know, if the Spirit is in us, we will, you know, gradually be you know, progressively sanctified over the course of our life, letting go of those sins and walking more and more in righteousness. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways you can kind of know that the spirit's in you. If you've been saved for 30 years and your life is just as depraved and demented as it was 30 years ago, you might want to start asking some questions there. The gospel Um, itself is, it is, it's about sin and it's about the sacrifice of Jesus. So you need a complete understanding of both because the, the gospel, the word of God makes you, says, makes you wise for salvation and you right. get your wisdom from reading the scriptures. Um, so don't just keep going to a church and hearing someone's own personal interpretation of the scriptures. Like you're not a wise person just taking their their word and not actually testing it. Um, you're too trusting. You're gullible. Um, so you can't say, oh, but my pastor said this when someone's saying, but God's word says this and you refuse to look at it. That's revealing a lot about your heart. Yeah. So, you know, he goes on in here, you know, he's talking about the, uh, not being shown, the full ramifications of our sin. Um, And I think part of that, it allows us to ignore to some degree what that sin is, you know, because I think if we truly saw the darkness and depravity of the sins that we commit, 
like he says in there, you know, heart attack might not be a stretch if you actually saw the full yeah. um, ramifications of the sins that you committed. And I do feel like, you know, Jesus tried to show us kind of how far reaching sin was, kind of the spiritual consequences of sin. Um, and made me think of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, um, where Jesus, I think, I think he highlights to us what the extent of sin is. He says here, um, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like, if you understand that the sin of adultery ruins lives, ruins marriages, ruins families, and Christ is saying that even your thoughts are just as destructive spiritually, like, it's the same sin. Like, just to get that concept of like, whoa, like I sin way more than I think I do. Like, I haven't had, I haven't given into adultery, but you've thought those thoughts a hundred times today. So you've committed a hundred sins, right? And that's kind of like Nikki said, you have to know the sins to really, that sets the foundation for the gospel, that you're a sinner separated from God. And you start to see those pictures of just how much sin is in your life that you can't even think properly. And according to a holy and perfect and righteous God, that sin, it's the same. You're committing the act in your mind and your heart, even if you're not physically committing that act. I think people just so badly want to believe that they're almost like God, that they're not that far off. In I mean, holiness, you see these righteousness. With, like, surveys and stuff that they'll ask people a lot. And most people will say that they generally believe people are good. People are generally good people. And you're like, not if you read the Bible. Like, we're evil. Um, you're more evil than you think. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, even your thoughts are sinful and evil. I think we'll understand so, once we're in heaven. No, it's hard to think. Like, how can we um be joyful in heaven knowing that? There are people that we know in hell. How would we not just be like crying all the time in heaven? But we're going to understand that contrast, God's holiness. Um, yeah, I think we'll justice. finally understand that like, it's not sadness that they are there. It's going to be joy that like, I should be there with them. Yet by the grace of God, I'm here. Um, that's going to be the joy. I think we're just going to see God for who he is. And I think he'll just give us understanding. He'll give us comfort. Um, we're not going to be judging God and saying he's too harsh. Really, God, eternity in hell, in torment? That's a long sentence. Well, God is eternal. Um, we really don't understand it. Like, we can try to talk about yeah. it, but we do not understand God's holiness, his, his perfection in every way, and that is um, that he is just in his judgments. We will have an understanding of that. Yeah, and uh, just kind of moving through this chapter a little bit more, he quotes Thomas Goodwin in here, and obviously he quotes a lot of Puritans, but he says, uh, or Thomas Goodwin writes, we all possess and share the same sin nature. We are all slaves to sin, not just to, not just to particular sin, Particular sins, such as theft or lying, are the result of the sin nature present in each of us. These effects or these acts differ from person to person, but the sin nature we have inherited from our Father. 
Um, and that father, of course, is Satan, you know, whom we're all children of until we're adopted into the kingdom of God. You know, we're, we're born sinners and liars, mm -hmm. um, children of wrath, as Paul would say it, until we're adopted into the kingdom of God. And then yep. Jones goes on and states, whatever actual sin we can conceive, the power to do so lies in each heart apart from the grace of God. There is no sin we could not theoretically commit. And like, think about that. You know, whatever sin we can conceive, we could theoretically commit. Um, this is, you know, kind of the basis of that famous quote. I tried to look it up. They don't really know who said it first, but uh, the quote of there, but for the grace of God, go I. Like an acknowledgement and understanding of the darkness of our own heart should lead us to a place of humility, you know, kind of to that place of, Hey, there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, I would commit any number of grievous sins or damaging sins, except for the grace of God. Uh, I think that's kind of the point he's getting across yeah, there. Yeah, God restrains wickedness in the world. Like if he didn't restrain it, nobody would exist anymore. We would have wiped one another out. Yeah. He does restrain um, how far each person does go, but he lets us see in others how far we could go and praise him for restraining it. It's yeah. I mean, it's a humbling thing and yeah. it should lead you to love for other people and humility in yourself and not being a prideful person to realize yeah. that like, you know, and again, kind of going back to what Jesus talked about, all of your thoughts, right? I mean, they're wicked and they're sinful and you're yeah. like, you know, yeah, it's easy to look at Hitler and Stalin and go, oh, really bad guy. But then realizing that same propensity to sin yeah. lies in you, mm -hmm. except that God would restrain it by his grace. Yeah. Um, it's a humbling thing. So, uh, and then just kind of moving through here, Joan says, loving God necessarily means hating sin. We love what God loves and hate what God hates. The more we love God, the more we will hate our sin. And since we still have remaining sin, we will hate its presence with a holy detestation that should lead us back to love for God in Christ. Mm -hmm. And to me, I mean, this is like, this is the first John chapter three, verse six quote. And one of the assurances that John gives us in his book, first John, do you want to read this quote or this verse? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Yeah. yeah. So it changed life. Um, really saying I used to sin continually and now I don't, and it isn't my own power. It is the power of the Holy Spirit in me. Yeah, and if you just continually sin, continually live in sin, you know, especially those those certain sins that might, you know, we talked about homosexuality and these sorts of things, um, you don't necessarily hate sin. So are you really loving God if you don't necessarily hate sin? And again, it doesn't mean that you overcome sin overnight. You know, it's a process, but when sin is presented to you or when it comes, you know, when you realize what sin is or what sin you've committed, do you hate that? Um, are yeah. you striving to live in a righteous life? And striving to overcome is telling God, I'm weak. Please help me. It is not a striving in your own power at all. If you can't overcome 
a sin? Have you just daily, <laughs> hourly, if you need to just come before God and confess your weakness? It is. It's a humbling. The whole thing is humbling yourself before God, desiring to be free of it. And then his power in you shows up to help you overcome. And the glory goes to God alone and you know it. Yeah, because it's kind of a two-part process. Like you have to hate sin, but I think you can only really hate sin properly when you love righteousness. Like you have yeah. to love and desire righteousness in order for you to hate and reject sin. Mm -hmm. um, so I think if you're not necessarily hating sin properly, it's because you don't desire and love righteousness properly. Right. Um, so I think they have to go hand in hand. But um, to that note, Jones in here in his book, he says, the sorrow we have over our sins must be over sins great and small. And Thomas Brooks, he adds this quote to that. He says, an unsound heart may mourn for great sins that make great wounds in his conscience and credit and that leave a great blot upon his name or expose him to public scorn and shame. But for sins of omission, for wandering thoughts, idle words, deadness, coldness, slightness, and religious duties and services, unbelief, secret pride, mm -hmm. self-confidence, and a thousand more, such gnats as these he can swallow without any remorse. I never think about the self-confidence one. We yeah, hear that all the time. We're to have confidence in ourselves, and yeah. to some degree, it's not bad. Well, if God has given you a gift, then you might have confidence in the, you know, you're gifted in a certain area. So you're not worrying that you're going to fail maybe in that sense. But maybe self-confidence to the point of, I don't need God in this area. Right. You know, not I, praying about something and worrying about it is. Like I know I was praying pretty hard about going back to fly. And now that I've, you know, I've done it and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty good at this. You know, I could fall into the self-confidence of, I don't need to pray for this flight. I don't need to pray, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm I was praying good at for this, you, don't you know, worry. Stuff, but, <laughs> um, but I think that point that, you know, Thomas Brooks makes there, it's easy to mourn over the great sin. Yeah. You know, you killed somebody or something drastic, but it's the small ones of self-confidence and pride that we just over overlook, we're comfortable with. Even if someone might tell us it's a sin, we're like, okay, I sure. But are we really like sorrowful over that? And then Jones kind of, this is the last quote I'll bring up from his chapter. Um, he says, as Christians, we should also remember that only the grace of God makes us differ from the vilest sinner in the world. And sorrow brings us mm. godly joy. Sorrow brings us to God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Sorrow is a blessing. It's a blessing, right? That's the whole idea of what is the good news if you don't know the bad news first. Um, you have to know the bad news. And um, those sorrows and, you know, it's easy again to be sorrowful over the, the great sins, the big sins, but getting to a place where you hate sin and love righteousness to where you're sorrowful over the small sins. Um, I think that's the sanctification process we were talking about, uh, at church on Wednesday, you know, I think one of the guys brought up and asked a question about how, you know, I think he was saying kind of like, as he, you know, he used to live a really bad life, you know, drugs and all this sort of stuff. But now as he's left some of those bigger sins behind, um, you know, he, I think he's like, he's struggling to, to find, I don't know, it was like struggling to find the sin or something to that effect was his question. And, 
the pastor was saying like it's kind of a paradox a paradox so. where as you the longer you walk with Christ um you know you leave those bigger sins behind but you start becoming made more aware of all the smaller sins so it's not like the sin ever goes away maybe the big ones do but you start being much more aware of those smaller sins like Thomas Brooks uh talks about there you know, you see the self-confidence. We've talked on here plenty of times that I think spiritual pride is a big one that we have to pray against. The longer you walk with God, you might think that you're become some, some spiritual stalwart, you know, where Even like... Even in your spiritual gift, you can become puffed up. Yeah. Like God gave it to you, but you're prideful in it. Like I mean, you Maybe that's make... how a lot of these, you know, like faith healers and stuff. I mean, who knows? Maybe God did use them at a moment in time. And he healed somebody through them. True. And maybe that pride took yeah. them. And they thought, I am, you know, I can heal from like, so who knows, right? That, but I think the longer you walk with God, that paradox of I'm leaving more sins behind, yet I'm being revealed more and more sin, you and know, you, and it keeps and then, you clean to God. Yeah. And he was saying how we become more and more humble. I mean, looking back and seeing what God has forgiven, but even those little sins become big sins to us. They should. Yeah. I mean, any sin should become a big sin to us. So this is kind of our application as we look to end this sort of discussion here. Our application is that you pray to God and pray that he would show you your sin. I, you know, I think that's a prayer that we should pray regularly, that he would expose the sin to you so that you might repent of it. You know, pray that God would cause you to hate sin as he hates sin and then Pray that you would love righteousness. Again, I think those have to go hand in hand. And pray that you would believe the words of God are true and that you, yes, you, beloved Christian, are a vile sinner in need of a Savior. (laughs) Repent for what God shows you as you pray to him and he reveals things to you. Repent for those things. Um, Because there are no small sins. You know, even the smallest sins separate you eternally from a holy and righteous God. I think when you come to realize that, and then you begin to be shown just how many sins um, we delve into on a day-to-day basis, that should bring you sorrow, that ultimately brings you to a place of joy, you know, because Christ did die for us while we were sinners, and we've been set free from that, from the the punishment of that sin. So um, if you don't have sorrow over your sin, especially the small ones, pray, because you should. I think sorrow is right in that. Mm-hmm. Be sorrowful over those sins. And then there are some people who will say, oh, that's just shame and guilt. And don't let the devil's just trying to make you feel unworthy and uh, that God doesn't love you. Um, there is a difference. We will not have shame standing before God on judgment day. But while we're here in the earth, shame over our sin is a good thing. It's a discipline. Uh, and it leads us to repentance, um, sorrow and shame, same, same meaning. Um, we should have shame over our sins, but when we stand before God, we will not be ashamed. So just understand that. Cause I've been taught to ignore conviction pretty much <laughs> but Don't by some well-meaning Christians. Yeah. So we do want to end here with our sermon recommendation. Well, lastly, do you have any final thoughts on sin and sorrow? No, that was it. Okay. Yeah, we do want to end. And in honor of Rick Warren and his great 
lineage and connection to Charles Spurgeon, we thought we would end with Charles Spurgeon. Now, of course, it's not really Charles Spurgeon, but somebody preaching a sermon of Charles Spurgeon's on indwelling sin. So um, we do have indwelling sin, all of us. We were born sinners and um, can't escape it. But uh, if you do place your faith in Christ, you can be forgiven for it. And um, Christ will have paid the penalty for that sin for you. Um, and the Holy Spirit will give you the power to overcome those sins in your life. Um, that is the Such blessed news, news of the gospel. So mm-hmm. um, go give Charles Spurgeon a listen and uh, take some few moments to drop a like and a comment, leave us a review, follow us if you're on the podcast. Again, we'd appreciate it. And reach out to us, send us an email. Um, we do our best to answer uh, comments and, and questions. Our last episode last week on Christian nationalism garnered a lot of comments, and I was very blessed for it. You know, we were kind of talking about evangelism at church and what that really meant. And I thought, man, what a great blessing it is because, you know, we do this podcast and, you know, I wish it wasn't this way, but it's only the, you know, kind of the atheists and the people that disagree, disagree with you for the most part that like to comment. We do get good comments from godly people, but a lot of them are people that disagree with you. And so you get opportunities to sit down and kind of have a back and forth with atheists that you otherwise would probably not interact with. And You know, they get to ask you questions and stuff about sin and transgender, you know, all these sorts of things that you're like, praise God. You know, I have a chance to share scripture and um, gospel messages with these people that I'm evangelizing to. And what a blessing that is. So um, just a little side note. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. go give Spurgeon a listen. Have a blessed week. Pray that you would have sorrow over your sin and that you would love righteousness. Pray that we would do the same. All right. God bless. For America's climate goals, investing in clean energy adds up. But what doesn't add up is an additionality requirement for clean hydrogen. Additionality would put an unnecessary and inequitable burden on domestic clean hydrogen producers and have serious consequences for America. America needs clean hydrogen, but an additionality requirement just doesn't add up. Get the facts at cleanhydrogentoday.org. Paid for by the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association.